This is episode 93 of the Landscape Photography Show, brought to you by Near Zero Backpacks. And before we get started, I want to thank patron Luis Arroyo and all of his dance moves that he shares on Instagram for being a patron to the podcast and supporting the podcast week after week to ensure we can continue to hear the stories from some of the best photographers on the planet. Louise has signed up for a tier that fit his budget and with that he gets specific benefits along with that including exclusive audio content from every single podcast episode. So thank you so much Louise. If you want to sign up and get access to that benefit, those bonus materials for the podcast and also some special surprises along the way, Go ahead and go to patreon.com slash David Johnston and sign up for a tier that fits your budget. Now, let's get to today's episode, and we're going to be talking with Bryn Elise Schmidt on the episode today. And I've known Bryn for quite some time within the realm of photography, but I'd never really spoken to her one-on-one before, and I was really excited to do that. Because Bryn has helped me a lot along the way. We share a lot of the same values and ethics within photography, caring about national parks and public lands. But I was really interested to hear Bryn's story into photography. What makes her tick as a person? And right off the bat, I'm so thankful for this, that Bryn was willing to be vulnerable about some of her experiences, like her son being sick for a long time, their trips to Africa, how she would pick up the camera when her husband wasn't using it. I thought all of that like really culminated to where she is now. And I know you're going to get a lot out of this discussion as well. The Landscape Photography Show is a podcast where you can listen to your favorite photographers talk about their journey in photography. It's a place where you can be inspired and also learn how to take better photos. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey everybody, we're here with Brynnalee Schmidt and Bryn is joining us fresh off a trip from some states out west like Wyoming and Montana. We were just chatting about that, but but Bryn... Welcome into the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, David. Why don't we jump off this ship and just hit the ground running with, with how you got started in photography and get everybody up to speed with, with your story and your journey of what led you to where you are right now? Okay. Um, it's a little convoluted, but um, my, my husband was actually a photographer, and when our kids were young. He did a lot of wildlife photography. We raised our kids in the wilderness, camping. Uh, We used to spend a month in Montana each summer up near Glacier, raised them in Yellowstone Tetons. And so we just spent a a lot of time outdoors. And I kind of wrangled the kids while he was doing photography because they they loved watching wildlife and, and everything. And so he was more focused on photography back then. And then, um, we we also we went to Africa and Alaska and again I'd, I'd pick up a camera he always had a couple so I would pick up a camera and shoot wildlife when it was easy and in front of me but I didn't really have that much of an interest in it overall he kept trying to teach me and I wasn't that interested <laughs> and then um, our son got really sick for a period of time and was actually in bed for three years uh, with uh, he had Lyme disease 
uh, still struggles with it a bit, but he was, he was bedridden and I went through kind of a really hard time. I, um, I struggle a bit with anxiety. So that was definitely really increased during this period of time. And, uh, in order to kind of keep, keep going normally through that period of time where we were, were so homebound and, you know, dealing with both kids, one who was healthy, one who was, you know, very sick. I started doing a gratitude journal uh, where I would just try to track three things a day I was thankful for to just keep my mindset in a, in a good space. And in doing that, as I started listing things out, I started grabbing my phone and taking photos of each thing and printing out the photos to put in the journal with me. And somehow over these three years where he was in bed, I started, you know, if we, if it was a, a scene, a sunset, I'd, I'd just, I'd transition and I'd pick up the real camera. Uh, I still did a lot of stuff with the phone. Uh, he came out of that in his sophomore year of high school and immediately my, my husband's a big climber and had been teaching my boys, you know, as they were young to climb. And as soon as he started coming out of that, they started climbing all the time. And I would go with them sometimes, but I didn't want to all the time. And I started just picking up his gear and and going, you know, everything was here. He had all the equipment and I've kind of stolen it all from him. So he's much more focused on the hiking, the climbing, the, you know, adventuring. I love doing all of that. And I, you know, we do, we do climb, we do a lot of trips that are based on climbing, but I am more focused on having a camera in my hand everywhere now. And kind of one of our rules is we can do climbing trips as long as they're to beautiful places, which generally go hand in hand. We've done Yosemite, Joshua Tree, Squamish and British Columbia and places that are really beautiful. And so I don't know, during that time that he was out with our boys more climbing, I had a lot of time to myself and I just started heading to the mountains. Rocky Mountain National Park's only about 45 minutes from me. Brainerd Lake Recreation Area is about 30 minutes. And so it's so easy for me to get up to the mountains. And I started with wildlife and then transitioned much more into landscape. And I still love to do wildlife. Wildlife is kind of my passion. And that that's an area that I focus on a lot with conservation. But um, landscape came more naturally to me uh, in terms of composition and, and uh, a lot more than the technical side <laughs> with the camera. What were some of the signs for your son having Lyme disease? Like, how did that start out? Well, he went mis well misdiagnosed and undiagnosed for 13 months. So we were at every doctor possible, uh, Children's Hospital in Denver. And for 13 months, we had no idea what was wrong with him. He just um, went from being a very active, athletic, bright kid to... Um, laying in bed, not being able to finish sentences. He couldn't read a page in a book where he, you know, used to read books that were definitely way ahead of his grade level. And so it had impacted his brain, his body, uh, you know, everything. He had feet issues, back issues. I mean, everything you could think of. And so nothing made sense. And Lyme disease hasn't been common out here. It is becoming a little more so, but doctors never assumed that that was it. So we kind of had to go out of the main medical system to find doctors that would, you know, I, I was kind of convinced he had Lyme disease actually at one point. I had actually written a paper on it in college, which is kind of weird because I was a environmental health and planning major. And so I kind of started pursuing that and found some doctors that would really dive into that. And that ended up being what he had. It's common out where I live in the Southeast. I know like even people yeah. who get bit by ticks and all of a sudden they're allergic to like red meat or something. 
Um, so there's all this that goes into preparing for the outdoors, you know, going on trips. We, I love to backpack on short little trips, right? but I never like prepare myself mentally for just a tiny tick bite. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's definitely something to be aware of if you're, you know, if you're doing photography and you're more of an adventure, we, you know, I do, we backpack, hike, we're out there a lot. Um, yeah, definitely tick checks all the time. You know, my son was just um, on a Knowles course in Montana and he had a couple ticks on him and they weren't deer ticks, but they, you know, any tick can carry disease. So you do want to do tick checks every night for sure. What is it like now for you? You mentioned everybody goes like climbing, you kind of go off on your own and do some uh, landscape and wildlife for, for it to be a family affair. What, what does that mean to you? So I think with our trips, it just means having a, you know, a good amount of, of family time. I need a lot of alone time. So I think it works out really well for me. I love the solitude that photography's provided me. I love the inspiration it's given me to get up early and to go hike. Um, I didn't used to hike alone. I wasn't that adventurous alone. And, you know, I was with my family for sure. But I, you know, I just got back from a trip where I was sleeping in the car for a week and, you know, camping on my own. And, and I love it. I love that alone time and that solitude. So I think when we're on family trips like that, we just, we have some balance. My whole family does do photography. Uh, my boys are very into it and, and pretty good. My son is actually a photojournalist for Colorado State University for the newspaper. And uh, my other son loves doing climbing photography, especially, but they both love wildlife and everything. So we'll always do photography. We'll always hit sunsets. Um, my youngest son gets me out the door more for sunrise when we're on family trips than I do him probably. So that's helpful. Um, a lot of climbing. There are certain days where like, you know, like if we're in, we were in Squamish, I would go with them and I will do like a climber too, but I'm not a, a big climber by any stretch, but I'll do something easy. And then um, I'll photograph them. I love taking photos of them climbing. We end up in incredibly beautiful areas. And then other times they'll drop me somewhere or I'll drop them somewhere and I'll go hike to the waterfall that I know is nearby or, you know, go to a location that I know I want to do photography at or um, sometimes they're right in the same area and sometimes we just plan on, okay, I'll drop you off. You drop me off and we'll meet up later. And they're very generous about letting me have the car when I need it for sunset or sunrise. And, and then I work with them on the climbing days. So we still spend a lot of time together. Um, you know, they'll do photography some and I'm with them climbing a lot and it's generally worked out really well. Do you think that they gain inspiration photographically from you and Eric? Definitely. Yeah, I think they have for sure. I mean, it's it's something that they seem to admire about me, which I really love that they, uh, you know, really see my passion for that and, and have kind of followed in that with us. My husband barely picks up a camera anymore. He really hasn't in the last few years. He's He's pretty funny. He uses his iPhone a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and has kind of like turned that over to me a little bit. Um, so occasionally he will. If we're, you know, if we're in Yellowstone and there's a grizzly bear, I have no chance of getting the 400 because he's got it, which is fair. It was all his gear. <laughs> Why is it that he doesn't really pick it up much anymore? Um, honestly, I think one of the things is, so a lot of the places we used to go, you know, if we were in the Tetons and he would go to a 
what's a very popular spot now. Back then, he'd be the only person. And he is a very backcountry kind of guy. When I met him, he was living in Yosemite Valley, climbing and leading wilderness courses, you know, 21, 14 day courses in the backcountry. And he would, you know, he would prefer backcountry skiing, cross country skiing to downhill. He just doesn't like the crowds. And so as parks got more crowded, he just had more of a tendency to get away from those areas, even if they were the beautiful spots and and places I'm still willing to go to sometimes for photography. Although I do definitely search out new locations where I can have more solitude and peace, but he would just get very frustrated with the amount of people that we had seen over the years as crowds continue to grow and photography became more popular. And so he just preferred the hiking, the climbing, being, you know, being out in nature and solitude, not around people where I love that too, but I will do both in order to, you know, take the photos I want. I just, I found that I love it so much that if a locations become popular, I, if it's still one of my favorite locations, I do want to go there. So I still will sometimes. Well, how did you yourself discover that you kind of needed that solitude when you were going out to shoot? You know, I don't even think I really discovered it until I started doing it, which probably sounds crazy, but I think I'd been so busy raising kids. And um, we also have a nonprofit that we founded several, well, gosh, 12 years ago now, um, where we do social and medical ministry work in Democratic Republic of Congo and Gabon and Africa. And that's how we had originally taken our boys to Africa. So I think I was so busy between raising them and then my older son, Ryan, being sick for five years and, you know, founding and doing this nonprofit during that whole time. I didn't I don't think there was time to be alone. I don't even think I had that option when he was so sick. One of us always had to be with him. One of us was always, you know, with the other son, trying to keep him active and engaged and everything. So. I think when he started to get better and suddenly there would be some days where they would go climbing and I would just decide, you know, I don't want to go. I want to stay here. And I think I just started realizing how much I needed that solitude and that time alone and that my boys were old enough for me to really start doing that. And honestly, the first time I went out, I remember taking his gear and heading up to Rocky Mountain and finding a herd of bighorn sheep and sitting there from... 5 30 at night until dark just with these bighorn sheep and there really there were a few people around but not many and I realized I didn't think about anything else like there I wasn't worried about anything I wasn't I was just wasn't thinking I was just so in the moment and just enjoying the sunset and the bighorn sheep and you know switching between a camera with landscape lens you know wide angle lens and then the wildlife lens and had them both and um, I came home from that so energized and just, I felt like I'd found a part of me that I didn't even really know was missing. And that was about, I guess it's, it's been about five or six years since I, since then, since I picked up a camera and really started diving into it. How has that part of you grown through the last five or six years? Um, that's a good question. I think I've really grown a lot in just knowing and understanding who I am, what I'm capable of. Like I said, I think um, my anxiety, um, I used to have panic attacks years ago, and I, I think my anxiety limited what I was willing to do for a long time. And when I found that solitude, you know, I think 
I think it was only like two months after that first time in Rocky that I did my first solo trip and went to the Tetons by myself for five days. And that's when I was like, oh, this is this is what I need in my life. I have to do this in order to feel healthy. And I think just through all that time, I've just grown so much in understanding and knowing who I am in my confidence in myself and my ability to just be out there alone a lot. And um, I really do refuel a lot with that. And I feel like I have a lot more to give everybody else when I've had that time for myself. I think that's really important having that time away for seclusion. And even you just described it perfectly. You know, you have the energy to interact with everybody else when you take that time for yourself. And for me, I'm curious because for me, a lot of times when I'm dealing with family stuff or I'm trying to kind of um, dissect my time or my day out, I feel a little bit selfish when when I do take that time. Uh, And maybe that's just in the initial steps uh, of learning about how to use that time well or how to deal with it. Did you ever have that feeling? You know, the funny thing is I didn't in the beginning because everyone was so busy doing their own thing. Um, I'm finding that I'm feeling that a little more lately. Uh, I think I need to be sure that I'm really focused on giving my time to others with what we do with our nonprofit, to my friends, to my husband, to the boys when they need me, which isn't, you know, as often at all anymore. They're, They're not home much, but, you know, when they are, they still need stuff. And so I think I found that I feel like I almost went a little bit to the other end of like, of being a little selfish, like, no, this is my thing. Now it's my time. You know, I haven't had this for so long. And so I've been working more on balancing that and making sure that I still um, put the people that are important in my life first, while still getting this, you know, this experience and this time for me. And I think it is a balance. I think we can easily go too far to one side or the other. And I think it's something I'm constantly working on. And and just like on our trip, same thing. There's times that I totally sacrifice a beautiful sunset and I'm watching it from where we are because I'm with, I'm with my husband and boys and they're climbing and having a great time and I'm photographing them in really good light. And they love that. And they're so thankful for the photos when, when we're done that I've, you know, taken of them. And so I will, I will definitely sacrifice that kind of thing to be with my family. But I have found that I have to sometimes work at it to make sure that I don't put myself first. Is there a um, feeling or a trigger, trigger emotion when, when you've gone too far one way or the other? That's good. Um, <laughs> I think with my family, if I've, if I've tried to do it or tried to, you know, like if we're in the middle of something and I am getting too focused on, what I want to do personally. I mean, they're so great. They're so supportive. So generally anytime that happens, it's support and I'm free to do what I want. But there are a few times where, I mean, my husband will make it pretty clear that that I'm pushing that boundary and need to be focused on what we're doing as a family at that point and stuff. So there've been just a couple times that that's happened. I, I try to do all that within my own thinking process and, and be present with my family and friends and be present when I'm in nature alone. But there've been a couple of times where I've had a little bit of correction from my own family <laughs> for sure. Well, I asked you if your kids gain inspiration from you, have you gained any inspiration from them? And kind of, I don't, I feel like when you go out and shoot with people that you're so close to, 
whether that be family or friends, that you kind of gain a little bit of insight from how they see the world. And uh, I'm curious as to if you've gained any inspiration from them through that. I have a lot. It's been really fun to watch them grow and photograph with them. And uh, during COVID, they were both stuck with us a lot. And we spent a lot of time up in just even Rocky Mountain National Park. And we went to the Wind River Range and went backpacking. And um, it's interesting when they're very into photography, I find that I do step back and I'm happy to share, you know, and give them the better gear. Uh, they love using the 400. My one son loves doing bird photography and I kind of step back and watch them and I'll leave, you know, or even they don't need much from me, but I'll, I'll try to help guide them a little if I think they need it at all. Like, wait, you know, look at this, you know, they'll show me a photo and I'll, I'll kind of suggest a different composition, but they're both really strong in how they photograph and, and in their own way of doing it. And so a lot of times if I'm like, well, I would, you know, what about, what about doing it this way? Well, I know that's how you would do it, mom, but this is, you know, this is how I do it. And so it's, it's been really fun to, especially when we're just in, you know, like Rocky Mountain National Park, which is our backyard, basically, that if there's, you know, one, one night last summer we were out and there was a moose, a pair of moose that were just interacting. And it was, it was really cool to watch them down by this lake. And just both boys had the, the wildlife lenses. And I just sat back and watched them photograph. And yeah, I get a lot of inspiration from them and, and from watching their style develop. And, you know, my, my older son who's in college and I talk about you know, we have different editing styles. And so he'll look at mine and he'll be like, well, yeah, I like it a lot. It's just not completely my style. And I'll, I'll look at his and say, you didn't bring out, you know, any of this color enough. And he's like, well, that's because I like everything really muted. And, you know, so we'll, we'll have all these discussions and, and it's really fun. And I've also gained a lot of inspiration from them. We've, you know, we really raised them out in the wild and wilderness, but with a real conservation mindset. And we taught that to them growing up when we would be in Montana up and near Glacier for a month each summer, I made them do nature journals every day. And so they'd have to find something and talk, you know, what does it smell like? What does it look like? And we would, they would draw it or we would take photos and everything. And they've really inspired me through the years. We'll be hiking and I won't be, you know, I wouldn't be focused enough. And I turn around and one of the boys is kind of far back and, you know, we're like, what, where were you? He's like, well, there was a bunch of trash off that trail and I went and picked it up and, you know, and I'm like, that's amazing. Like th that, that's just natural to them. And so they inspire me a lot in, in that whole area too, of just taking care of, of trails and places and, um, you know, honestly reminding me to be more careful in a lot of ways. And so that's been really fun to see that, we raised them that way to have that care for the environment. It's great that you have family around that conservation mindset. How do, how do us as photographers though, talk about conservation through our photography a little bit better? Cause honestly, I think a lot of us have been dropping the ball on communication on how to conserve through our photography. How do we do a better job of that? Um, I think one of the ways that I've been working on doing and um, that I've learned a lot is just honestly educating people more. I think it's really important that instead of just talking about a location or, or the shot, you know, talk about a little bit more about the behind the scenes of that. You know what? Like I remember seeing a post of yours that was about graffiti that you saw 
And you shared about that and, and what that did instead of taking the shot that didn't include that. And I think that type of education is so important. Um, I have found that, you know, I think I used to be more vocal in disapproval of people's behavior and, and everything, and that that does not work. And so I've just really turned to be more of an educational mindset. I try to do it in my posts. I do a lot of blog posts that are educational about conservation, about a lot of wildlife issues that are really important to me. Um, I'm on staff for Nature First Photography, which uh, is an alliance for responsible nature photography. And that's really helped me hold myself more accountable, I think, in every area too. Um, you know, we all make mistakes. We all aren't perfect. But if we can do our best to leave, you know, follow leave no trace principles and and then nature first principles are, are kind of an extension of that, of leave no trace principles for photographers, um, I definitely would encourage encourage all photographers to look into naturefirstphotography.org and um, you can join as a member for free there and you just kind of are committing to following principles and what and one of our biggest ones is educating others and so I think especially uh, in social media you know no matter how many followers you have you have influence over people and if you even just start there with writing some educational posts about the environment or, you know, like one thing I'll write is if I've taken flowers, flower shots up on Trail Ridge Road or, you know, mountains with flowers in the foreground, I could, I'll talk about the the tundra and the alpine environment and how fragile it is and how if you step on those flowers, they are damaged for years and, and things that, you know, that a lot of people are like, oh, I had no idea. I didn't think of that. Or, you know, I, I wrote a post that a, a lot of people shared at one point about bison in winter, that if you're on the road in Yellowstone in winter, they're doing everything they can to conserve their energy to just not die <laughs> during those negative 25 degree days up there. And if you bring your car up on them fast and make them run off the road to get out of your way, um, it, it it just expends too much energy for them. And so, you know, I wrote about just slowing down, giving them their space. And, and so many people were like, I never would have known that. Like that never would have crossed my mind. And so I think that's kind of a great place to start is just um, sharing any kind of little bit of education, um, about what, you know, I still think there are a lot of photographers that don't have that education themselves. And so for, um, anyone who doesn't feel like they have that yet, I would just, I would just try to do a little research about the areas you're photographing. One of the things we always talk about is know before you go, kind of planning ahead and understanding the environment you're going to, what areas are sensitive, what aren't, you know, what areas are fine where you, you know, don't have to worry about much other than just packing it in, packing it out. But what areas are, are very sensitive? Do you need to be very careful? Are there certain areas you shouldn't go to and shouldn't photograph because they are so environmentally sensitive? And we, you know, that's something I've learned through photography too, is I've definitely and I didn't do this necessarily early on, but I definitely will. I will now always make the decision to protect a sensitive area over photographing it. And if that means I don't get a certain shot that other people have or that I wanted, that's okay because it's more important to me to protect these areas that, um, you know, so many are getting so overrun. I think too, and this isn't something that I initially put into my photography when I, I knew about conservation, but I wasn't like, I mean, I'll be the first to admit, I wasn't really committed to it when I first started my photography. 
Um, but, but through my travels, you know, my wife and I will always take a day when we go somewhere just to like not really do anything, but we'll go on like a free walking tour and learn about the place, learn about the city that we're walking around we're experiencing, um, starting to do the same thing with like national parks or even state Mm -hmm. parks that I visit, just going to the headquarters and, and reading what they have hanging up will often give you a very good idea of why it is set apart as a park, what makes it fragile, what makes it unique and delicate. And and what you can learn from that is what you should not do when you're out exactly. shooting. And I, I think that's that's one thing that a lot of people miss because you know you're so excited to get into the park, you just fly right by the visitor center and go to the first location. Definitely. I've, I've written about that. Um, I write a lot for nature first and then also just for my, you know, our own website and, and blog posts there. But, um, that is one of the things I definitely suggest too, is definitely always visiting any kind of visitor center, whether it's a national park or, you know, I know it's different in Europe and other places, but anywhere that there is some kind of visitor center and, and, you know, also ahead of time, look those places up ahead of time and learn what you can. And, you know, and then I, I, I always think it's great to also consider, you know, purchasing locally, you know, going to local stores and, and then just, I mean, this, this is just more that whole no before you go thing, but, you know, if you're traveling a bunch, throw in a few of your own grocery bags, bring water bottles that you can refill, you know, especially all of our national parks, there's water fill stations everywhere. So bring an algae bottle, whatever, and, and refill that. Don't be buying, you know, plastic water bottles. And, you know, so there's even little steps like that, that if we just think about make a big difference. Over the last five weeks, you've been hearing from our sponsor, Near Zero Backpacks, about what they're able to do for you as a photographer with their backpacks. Now we've talked about things like sustainability, being the lightest backpack on the market for photographers. This week, I want to talk about modularity. Now, now having this option of modularity is huge for me. I have so many backpacks in my closet that I have no other space to put storage or anything like that. Having a backpack with modularity is really important to me. You know, with this roll top backpack design, it has versatile volume inside from 18 to 35 liters of storage space. Within that, you have modularity within the ICU that comes with the bag. And you also have different options of like adding a hip belt to your bag as well for those longer treks with a heavier pack. Now, modularity for me is important, and I can think of a multitude of different reasons. You know, do I want to carry extra jackets? Is it colder? Do I want to layer my clothes? Do I want to pack more food? Usually that's the case. And having something like 18 all the way to 35 liters gives me so many options of what I can do with a backpack while saving on money in the long term because I'm only buying one pack and also saving on storage space because I have a pack so versatile. 
So this can also help me on flights if I want to pack more in my bag to 35 liters or if I want to carry it on as like a personal item, I can do that and save space by packing only the 18 liter option. The roll top is also great because it is waterproof, having that feature where it rolls with the really durable fabric that comes with it, virtually indestructible. I want to thank our sponsor for today, Near Zero Backpacks. If you want to get your own Near Zero Backpack or you want more information on those, you can go to nearzerolabs.com and be sure during checkout to tell them that David Johnston sent you from the Landscape Photography Show. But for now, let's get back to our discussion with Bryn. Why did you decide to volunteer for Nature First? Um, I've often been involved in some sort of environmental organization, uh, whether just, you know, volunteering my time a little bit or financially supporting. I have a passion for the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. So a lot of our financial support goes to that area. I think I really wanted to be a part of nature first because I, you know, personally, like you have seen the impact of of what photography has done to our public lands and these places that are so incredibly special to so many of us. And I want everyone to be able to see them. I'm, you know, I love that people are getting outside more and visiting these places, but we have to, you know, do it responsibly and, and be able to educate others. So I loved the idea of just being a part of a movement that, you know, was, we, we talk about basically if you have an iPhone and you're out photographing, you're, you're a nature photographer, you know, anyone can be a nature photographer if they're going to any of these places and shooting with um, an iPhone or a real camera. And so just really encouraging everyone to kind of just take the, these, you know, a pledge to, to put nature first over your photography. And so I've really enjoyed being a part of that movement and sharing that information with people to just be working, you know, so much of it is just awareness and education and for ourselves and then helping other people as we go along with it too. And so I think I just, the, the conservation side of me, my, my background is in environmental planning and I worked for an environmental law firm out of college for a few years. And my boss was actually wrote part of the endangered species act. So this is all just very, you know, integral to who I am and, and the passions I've always had. And, and to be able to combine that with photography was was such a perfect fit for me. And so I've been volunteering for them for about a year and a half. And I think about a year ago, I, I started overseeing the social media and writing more for uh, the website and everything. And, and I've really, it's an amazing group of people, um, incredible photographers that that care so much about our environment and will sacrifice their photography to protect it. And that's really inspiring to me. When I say a phrase like impact on public lands, what distinct memory comes to mind or what experience comes to mind about seeing that firsthand? So what, I guess one thing that, well, a couple of things, one would be, um, like the molten barn in the Tetons. Uh, if people aren't familiar with that, it's, it's one of the most famous barns in our country. And it's this, you know, old homestead with the, the Tetons behind it. And it's beautiful. And when we first photographed there, when my husband was doing more photography, there was just this beautiful tall grass 
that, you know, when you went to, to photograph the barn, it just sat in this, you know, tall, knee high, probably uh, just wild grass and, and was so beautiful. And these last few years when I've, when I've gone there, that's just gone. It's, you know, it's just, it's pretty much just dirt all around in front of the barn um, because there's so many people all the time, you know, every season of the year walking there. And so just, I mean, it's, it's seems fairly small cause it's, it's not like, you know, it hasn't been fenced off. It hasn't been protected around that part. You can walk around the barns and everything, but to see that natural landscape from summer and fall that just grew wild up around the barns and provided, you know, it was, it was a more beautiful shot then than it is now. Um, so I think that's an example. I think the maroon bells is a perfect example of, you know, going to photog- uh, to take photos there years ago. I mean, there were people there for sure, but I haven't been in the last four, four years probably because of the crowds I've chosen not to go, but I know that now they have it fenced, you know, fenced off and photographers are often, still climbing over the the fencing area to take photos and and that kind of thing is you know is impact i've seen and then the same thing with wildlife being a wildlife photographer i've just seen so much of the impact of people wanting to watch animals and and get a photo of them if it's on their you know real camera or cell phone and you know an animal being surrounded by a hundred people and people not staying the proper distance away and and that's been painful to watch too and and so i've had to really make decisions with wildlife photography too my my favorite thing is grizzly bears and so photographing them is is what i would choose to do over anything and um the most famous grizzly bear is this 399 in the tetons she had four cubs this year and people are just swarming her and so I, I was trying to photograph her in fall and just realized, like, I can't be a part of this. I can't I can't be another one of these people that is is doing this. You know, people there's so many people that just don't even pull off the road that just stop. And, it, you know, it's just creating just kind of a disaster <laughs> of traffic and hordes of people. And, and so I, I chose, you know, when I, I was just up there this last week and I chose not to even look for her and. You know, I'm not saying that's something people should do necessarily, but for me, um, having spent so much time alone with wildlife and and now seeing how crowded areas have gotten and how, you know, 100 people will surround an elk to take photos of it, um, just realizing I don't want to be a part of of adding to that, that I can be one person who steps away from that. And, you know, I certainly understand if you haven't seen an elk before and you're in Yellowstone for the first time, absolutely. I understand that you want to see it, but I don't need to because I've, you know, I've seen that and photographed that. So just kind of choosing to to walk away from that more, um, if that makes sense. How can we, though, I, I know Nature First talks about educating other people. Um, I've even tried to take the approach in the field when I see somebody doing something wrong or commenting on a social media post, trying not to be like that person. Um, how do we gauge as people who may be doing something wrong and not knowing it, how do we gauge accountability versus like having that knee jerk reaction of like, I'm being, attacked or called out? I think that's the hardest issue right now. I think that's, that's the struggle we're seeing. Um, 
And I, I don't think we, any of us have the right answer, or I think we would be able to correct the behavior a lot more. So I think it's a huge struggle. I think um, one of the things I've learned and that, um, you know, we've been, to, uh, we've been doing these, I have, I started the conservation photography club on, on clubhouse. And in that um, audio chat, social media setting, we've had some great conversations about all of this. And one of the things we've really talked about is that the best way is, is I think to go into it, assuming people don't know better. Now, a lot of them do, and a lot of them are choosing that, but there are definitely people who don't know or who followed another photographer who was, who knew, who knew better, but was doing something wrong. And then they assumed, well, if they're doing it, then, then that's okay. I can do it. And they followed them. And so if you ask them and talk to them, you know, nicely, like, did, you know, did you know, and, and doing it, you know, personally, don't call them out on a, on a post or in front of a, a group necessarily, or if they're with other people, just talk to them super nicely, just try to engage with them first. And, you know, I'll, you know, just talk about the area you're in and just try to establish a little bit of a just, you know, personal connection and then ask them if, you know, if they know. I've done that a lot with um, the tundra in Rocky Mountain National Park. There's so many areas where the signs are really small. It's just a little wooden sign uh, along the road. And so people will head out on a trail and then don't think about it. And I, I completely understand that. If I didn't live here and came here for the first time, I really wouldn't understand that stepping off the trail was an issue. And so I feel like I've actually done that well in our park of educating people by just kind of saying, Hey, I don't even know if you saw the signs, they're really small here and you can't, you know, a lot of times they're just not, not visible enough, but um, you're really supposed to stay on the trails and then just explaining because the flowers here, it's, it's such a fragile ecosystem that the mosses and lichen and flowers take years to regrow. And nine out of 10 people are like, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't know. And I'm like, oh, I, I didn't think you knew. I just wanted to mention it because, you know, I live here and, and I know this or, you know, trying to take that approach. There's always people that are going to be like, I don't care. And I'm going over here to explore this or to take this photo. And there's really nothing we can do about that. But I think we can try to just model the behavior and, you know, model that ourselves or explain why we're not going to a certain area if other people are, and then just doing our best to talk to people and engage and educate them. It's, it's not going to change everybody's minds, but there are a lot of people who actually do care that just don't, don't have the knowledge uh, or understanding about it. I do want to want to talk about your photography specifically and, and your approach. You mentioned when, when we first started and describing kind of how you moved from wildlife to landscape to what that transition was like. How, how did you learn to go from wildlife to landscape? Um, it's interesting because I felt like I was having a bit of a crisis this past week over the two. Um, I'm really struggling with how do you do both because it is exhausting to chase wildlife all day and be up at sunrise and sunset to try to do landscapes, but then jump right into chasing wildlife. So that's an interesting topic for this past week. I've, I've been in this bit of a crisis. Um, I just, I think just so starting with wildlife, it's, you know, it's the same thing. You want to photograph them in, in good light and that's, evenings and early mornings. And so you would, 
I would start out by getting up to go do that. And I think I just found myself getting really drawn into the landscape. And, you know, if I can get an animal in a, in a grander landscape, that's my favorite. Um, it doesn't happen that often for me, but that would be my goal. But I think I just became so much more focused on light and, um, you know, at first it had to do more with the, the animal I was photographing the, with the way the light would play off their, their fur and, you know, just the difference it made. And, and so I started paying so much more attention to that. And then in the process, I think so many times I would just end up turning toward whatever scene I saw and photographing that, especially if I wasn't having luck with wildlife. And I think I found that, um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm great at this at all, but composition came much more naturally to me. Um, the technical side of photography is harder for me, but composition feels very natural to me. And I think I just started enjoying that so much, just composing shots. And, and then also, again, that solitude and that peace, I would find that a lot more when I was just sitting at a lake waiting for sunset than driving all over or hiking. You know, I, I definitely drive more for wildlife. If I find it on trails, that's awesome. But I don't do a lot of backcountry hiking to find animals. That's just more happenstance with all the backcountry stuff that we do do. Um, so I, th I think I just started realizing that, I mean, I love both. Um, I just, I definitely found that solitude and going to a lake by myself and just sitting in an area an hour before sunset and just enjoying it, watching the light change, watching, you know, the whole scene kind of unfold and, um, and taking photos of that. Now, if a bear showed up, yeah, I'm, I've lost my focus on the landscape and I would be all focused on the bear. So it, it's very, I find it, I don't know about other people, but I find I'm finding it very hard to do both. Um, I don't think I do both well. I think I struggle with being a strong wildlife photographer because that's my passion and what I love the most, but it's exhausting. It's a huge time commitment. Um, and I can be very patient. I can sit for six hours and wait for the grizzly bear to, you know, come out of the tall grass, but it, you know, it is a huge time commitment. And then I miss some landscape opportunities. So it's often this like, especially when I'm on a trip and, and in the Tetons or Yellowstone or somewhere, it's, it's kind of this choice of like, okay, am I, am I going right to look for the bears or the wolves or am I, am I going to do a landscape and, and let the wildlife kind of slide unless I see it. And, and I'm that, that was, I realized this past week, like that's killing me doing both. Um, so I don't have an answer or solution to my current situation, but I was like, I am just exhausted um, because you can be chasing wildlife all day if you want. And especially, you know, on those overcast days where you have some great light for wildlife, you're like, oh, well, it may be, you know, 11 a.m., but I can still be out <laughs> finding wildlife. So um, I don't know. I, you know, again, it's my love. My passion is wildlife, but um, I'm definitely finding myself more drawn to landscape photography. Even though you, you are having that inward killing yourself, as you said, <laughs> um, 
does it still make you like a well-rounded creative photographer knowing how to do both and being able to transition between the two? I think it does. Definitely. Um, I think wildlife photography has pushed me to learn a lot, a lot more about my camera. Um, you know, I mean, there's so much to know with landscape photography too, but I've just had to learn different aspects for wildlife photography. Um, and that's been a harder one for me, just especially because a lot of times you're trying to shoot in such low light and, you know, your subject's moving. So I think it's definitely helped. It's, you know, it's, it's <laughs> I was with someone last night and we were up in Rocky Mountain at this lake and we're, you know, set up for the sunset. And then all of a sudden a goose family comes through with five goslings and they're just geese, but I'm suddenly snapping my, you know, lens off and switching lenses and, I'm now chasing the geese around the side of the lake instead of just sitting at the lake. But I love that too. So, you know, sometimes it's a choice. Sometimes I absolutely head out on a hike. I do not have any lens for, for wildlife and I'm just 100% committed to just enjoying the peace and quiet in the landscape. And other times if it's, you know, closer to the car or an easy hike, I often have, have both and am happy to jump back and forth. You know, I also locally, I kind of know those spots where, you know, at a lake where an elk or moose may show up in the water. And I know I want both lenses for that. Um, and a lot of times, you know, well, not a lot, but occasionally they line up in front of those mountains. And so I'll have both for that. But I think it's definitely helped me um, be more well-rounded as a photographer. Um, I feel fortunate that we had all that gear because it is so expensive to get into some of these wildlife lenses. And, um, you know, we, we had some of that already. So while I've, um, you know, we've, we've bought a few things. I've, some of those lenses are, are 400 is an old lens at this point, but it's just too expensive to replace something that's working so well still. So, uh, it weighs about 13 pounds. <laughs> yeah. Those, those are beasts. I took like a 200 to 600 to Africa when I went and that thing was, like lugging that thing around and carrying it in and out of the, the vehicles was torture. Definitely. I was like, yeah, where's my little wide angle that I can. <laughs> I know we had the 400 all through Africa and it was ridiculous. <laughs> well, let me ask you this, you know, you're having this inward struggle going on. What does the future of your photography look like? I don't know. <laughs> Is that a I bad came, thing? No, I don't think so at all. Um, I actually think it's a really good thing. I think it's important that we we look at where we're at in our photography. If we're not growing from it, you know, I I, I think we can do well still, but I, I don't think we, we get a lot better if we're not growing and kind of analyzing where we're at. Um, so I think it I think it's a, a process. Um I like, I actually like that I'm here. I was just so exhausted on this trip that I was, I think it was more of this crisis of like, I just can't do it. It's too much. I can't do all of it. And so I think it's something I'll just be working through. Um, if I get up for sunrise, I think that landscape is becoming my priority. I love the solitude. I love going places. You know, I, I'm, I'm amazed that you can be in a crowded park like Yellowstone and still be alone at sunrise. And so that's the beauty 
um, of that for me is, is just that peace and quiet in this park that, you know, in, in two hours, this area I'm standing at is going to be packed with people. And yet at sunrise, I'm the only one there. And it is so peaceful and beautiful. And so I love that feeling so much that I think that is definitely where I'm headed more, that that that's what I, I want to make sure I'm enjoying that solitude and that quiet beauty that's available when it's available and not chasing grizzly bears at that point. But um, I, I still hope to be able to do both. I still hope to come across a grizzly bear or, you know, at certain times, in certain places that will be my focus. But I, I think I'm probably drawing more to landscapes and maybe not so much of the wildlife chasing unless it's a more natural thing. But I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't know for sure. And I think that's okay. <laughs> Where can people go to find more out about you? Um. So my husband and I have a website. It's flatironsphotography.com, uh, just named after our flat irons here in Boulder, Colorado. Um, I am on Instagram at brin.elise.photography. And now I'm on Twitter <laughs> at brinelisephoto too. And I've probably been spending a little too much time there. Um, okay, and then Twitter's definitely Twitter is so fun. <laughs> I, I have to admit, I've done one post on Instagram in the last five or six weeks because <laughs> I found Twitter and I'm having, and everyone says photography Twitter is like what Instagram was five or six years ago. So it is, it's, Twitter's been very fun. Um, and then, yeah, for everyone, I would love them to check out Nature First Photography. Um, I'm, I have a presence there with writing and just being on staff and it's, you know, all of the photographers involved on staff there and as volunteers and advocates. It's an amazing group of people. And so I encourage everyone to check that out too. And what's your nonprofit called? It's called E4 Project. Okay, good. Yeah. Well, she's Brannalee Schmidt. Thank you so much for joining us and talking photography. Thank you so much, David. So the podcast is over right here, but it continues over on Patreon. So if you want exclusive content and audio from each podcast episode like this one, you can go to patreon.com slash David Johnston and sign up for whichever tier fits your budget. And with each tier, you get benefits like exclusive audio for what I'm about to tell you about. Now, Bryn and I have talked extensively over the past few months about something that's going on in photography right now, and that is NFTs. And no matter what side of the fence you're on with NFTs, I do think it's really beneficial for you to know what's going on with them, what they are, how they work, and some of the viewpoints on how they operate. And Bryn and I talk about that in this next little segment. She was the one who introduced me to NFTs, and she's the one I credit what I'm doing with NFTs with in that space. So again, if you want exclusive audio to the podcast like Luis Arroyo got when he signed up for the Patreon tier that he signed up for, you can go to patreon.com slash David Johnston and sign up for whatever tier fits your budget. Thanks so much, guys. Can't wait to see you next week.